Our call to worship is in the form of call and response, like all great things, this is a dialogue. And here's your line from the poet Rumi, don't go back to sleep. Let's try that together. Don't go back to sleep. The breeze at dawn has sun, has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. Spirits are crossing back and forth at the bridge where the two worlds touch. Don't go back to sleep. The door is round and wide and open. Don't go back to sleep. In this spirit of wakeful intent and grateful presence, come, let us worship together. Amen. Please join with me in the words for the lighting of the chalice. They're written in your order of service. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. This day, and these ceremonies of ordination and installation represent the culmination of a long process of search and discernment, both by this congregation and by this new minister. Without question, this is an occasion of relief and great celebration <laughs> for all concerned. And the energy of that rejoicing is all around us. Nevertheless, it is my task, as we settle in now to the rituals that make this all real, to remind those present that these events are not primarily congratulations, but solemn covenants. This congregation proposes today to exercise the prerogatives reserved only to the local individual religious community by the traditions of the free church. Ordination and installation are two separate acts, both of them weighty, by which an individual is first set apart in his unique commitment to the vocation of ministry, and then called to fulfill that service to the Most High in the context of a particular community's life and work. By ordaining Justin to the Unitarian Universalist ministry, the members of the First Universalist Church are witnessing to all the members and congregations of this association that he is worthy of our most tender and intimate trust. You are affirming that you have found in him such wisdom of spirit and groundedness
that his integrity may be assumed, his leadership relied upon, and his advice received with confidence. You place upon his shoulders a mantle that he may not lightly remove hereafter, wherever he may go, whatever other communities he may engage. You name, and by naming make real, a minister. Having thus set him apart to the work of ministry, you then, by the act of installation, invite Justin to unfold his ministry here in the midst of this unique congregation with its particular demands, opportunities, history, and gifts. By calling him to be both a minister and your minister, you promise him that your relationship, the way that you live into his ministry and he lives into your ministry, will be a path of spiritual growth that you all travel. He will guide you to become the church that you have the potential to be as you guide him to become the leader he has the potential to be. You install him, not as an appliance to work at your bidding. but as a partner in covenant to discover your shared future together. As one of your neighbors and well-wishers, I do understand what a burden of anxiety is lifted from your hearts with the beginning of this new relationship and how gladly you embrace it. We who cherish you share your rejoicing. But also be mindful that what you do this day is a sacred privilege, won by costly sacrifice of labor, suffering, and even life in centuries past, that we should have the right to name for ourselves those who are to be ministers among us. Today, you lift up that covenant of freedom in your communal hands and bestow its grave summons upon this man who comes to you in open-hearted aspiration. As you and he together forge another link in the long chain that is our living tradition, I call upon you to exercise this power that is yours alone as a duly constituted congregation with thoughtful intention. Let this hour be a blessing not only to everyone here in this room and to all the members of this church now and yet to come, but also to every soul and every community whose lives the future of your shared ministry will touch. I'm Mayor R.T. Ryback, and thank you so much for welcoming uh, me to be part of this ceremony. Uh, I can't walk into this room without mentioning uh, 
a wonderful moment a few years ago with somebody who has now, now gone, the beautiful Marilyn Daggett. I don't know if you remember, but as she played her beautiful song there is one of the great memories I have in this room. And my great friend Peg Meyer, who I've known since for many, many years. So many wonderful people in this room. And it means so much to be included as part of this ceremony. The very first mayor of Minneapolis was part of the founding congregation, and the current mayor comes to say thank you and to welcome to this great new faith leader who will join our community. You know, ceremony is so terribly important as we try to put this into context. And across America at this very moment in major cities, there's a, a somewhat different ceremony taking place that I think gives us some context of this day. And that ceremony would be, of course, the ritualistic Sunday afternoon football game that you see. <laughs> and in those NFL football games, a certain ritual takes place that I'm sure you'll see on the replays that as a person catches a touchdown, they cross the goal line, and then in an exuberant moment will get on their knees and reach their hand high and bow their head in an extraordinarily exuberant expression of their relationship with their God. And as a person of faith who often expresses it far more subtly, I have to say, I sometimes... <laughs> Thank you for passing the budget. No. They, uh, uh, <laughs> um, I have to say, I admire that in a certain way, but I want you to imagine with me, if you will, what would happen if a Unitarian actually had caught that pass. <laughs> um, As they were about to finish the goal line, with the ball held high, they look to their teammate and hold out a hand to join in the celebration, and then the other teammates. And as they're about to cross with all their teammates, they look across and welcome in the enemy to be part of the exuberation. <laughs> beautiful thing, a beautiful thing. The crowd is, of course, welcomed in, and the ritual takes a long time, and the coach becomes very, very confused and finally realizes that what they should do, the coach conspires to have someone wronged in the end zone, another player tackled from behind or something. When the Unitarians see it, they suddenly rush into the end zone to help those who were wronged, and the touchdown is scored. <laughs> Unitarianism does not make for good football, but it makes for extraordinary community. And for 150 years, that ritual that has just been acted out has been seen by members of this congregation and the other congregations throughout this incredible state as one by one in times of triumph and more important in times of great need, you have rushed to where there has been need. Now intellectually, I have known that, historically I've known that, as a reporter I've known that and heard about it, but I have to say how deeply I have seen that personally over this time that I've been in the mayor's office and in the deepest and darkest parts of town, it's time it has been you. The members of this congregation who have been bedrock, members of a community that has reached out their hands. In the wake of 9-11, in a period of time where this city, where we now speak 80 languages, was often targeted as a place where we should not welcome immigrants to our community, this group, bedrock, was opening its arms and proving the Statue of Liberty still lives within our community in periods of time where the gay and lesbian community was not always welcomed here, this congregation, there was no question. When wars were fought that should be seen as unjust, certainly when I went out to the protests, it was you. Always this congregation and these members who were there. When we faced an epidemic of youth violence in this community and we said we needed to do something differently to truly bring peace to every part of the community, it was you. Over and over and over again. And so many faith communities come forward but rarely is there ever 
a place where those in need are, where there is not a member of a con this congregation that I see here today. You are a remarkable, remarkable group of people who now welcome a remarkable leader. I have to warn him, they will put you through your paces. <laughs> they ask extraordinarily good questions, sometimes very tough questions. They speak truth to power. And yet what they do, all of you, is go out into the community and make things better. Stop and think over these 150 years what you have done collectively and, even more exciting, what will happen over this next 150 years in a community filled with all of you and all of this spirit and think about what can happen as we try to evolve into a new people who do speak 80 languages and come from all over the world and become global citizens, as we try to address the issues of the climate that we do, as we build safe communities and opportunity communities and so many other things. I have confidence that this community will always be known as something different and deeper so much because of you. So I want to welcome Terry to this congregation and to say that you are a remarkable group. And I want to finish with a final point. A few years ago, this community faced one of the darkest tragedies we will face, when a bridge collapsed in the middle of rush hour and suddenly strangers who were on a bridge died or were injured and horrible things happened. But what happened after that was what was so remarkable. One by one, people saw throughout the world random acts of extraordinary kindness and generosity from this community. And a couple days after the tragedy, the reporters who go to these things all the time, frankly, came up to me and said things like, what is it about this place that when something bad happens, people rush to help? Well, there are many reasons for that, but so many of them start right here. So I want to thank you for 150 years of being exactly who you are, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you very much. I think we're all grateful that the mayor didn't actually bring a football into the chancel and spike it right here. I'm Jim Gertmany and I'm the senior minister at Plymouth Congregational Church. But today I have the privilege to bring you greetings not only from myself and my congregation, but from a wonderful consortium of faith communities around Minneapolis. Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Unitarians all of whom are cooperating with one another, learning from one another, listening to one another, and coming to love one another. We acknowledge with you here at First Universalist that no one language can contain the divine and that no one religious tradition can hold all the people of God. We and the members of our churches and our temples and our mosques are not only committed to our own ministries and our own congregations, but we are committed to ministry in this city and to this city. Your congregation has not only championed a universalist vision, but you have also been in the forefront, as the mayor said, of works of justice and peace and care, particularly for those who are most vulnerable in our midst, the ones who most deserve our attention and our care. James Forbes, who was most recently the senior minister at Riverside Church in New York and who incidentally will be preaching this Thursday night at the installation of Peg Chamberlain as uh, the president of the National Council of Churches that will take place here at St. Mark's uh, Cathedral on Thursday night. Jim says that the next great awakening in America will be an interfaith awakening. And I'm sure he's right about that. 
humanity's hope for the future depends on our finding ways to celebrate and live out a universal faith while at the same time honoring the importance and integrity of our particular religions. Your tradition, perhaps more than any, has always led us in that direction. And for that, we are all grateful to you. And to Justin, I know that my colleagues would join me in welcoming you to our fellowship and would offer to you on the occasion of your ordination these words of James Weldon Johnson, a blessing for the preacher. Johnson wrote, put his eye to the telescope of eternity and let him look on the paper walls of time. Lord, turpentine his imagination. Put per perpetual motion in his arms. Fill him full with the dynamite of thy power. Anoint him all over with the oil of thy salvation and set his tongue on fire. May you all be blessed. Beginning of Faith by Kathleen Norris. An alert human infant at about one month of age begins to build a vocabulary, making sense of the chaos of sound that bombards the senses. Addressed by another human being, the baby pays attention with its whole body, waving arms and legs in response. Soon, it begins to move the tongue in and out of its mouth in imitation, trying on the sound of speech, which at one month is well beyond its capabilities. But it is worth the effort, and the child will continue to try. Eventually, the rudiments of words come, often mama, dada, me, and the all-powerful no. An unqualified yes is harder to sell to both children and adults. To say yes is to make a leap of faith, to risk oneself in a new and often scary relationship. Not being quite sure of what we are doing or where it will lead us, we try on assent. We commit ourselves to affirmation. With luck, we find that our efforts are rewarded and the vocabulary of faith begins. An excerpt from a sermon entitled Prophecy and Vision, the church for a new millennium, October 28, 2007, delivered on the ordination of Gaydon Gingrich as the new senior minister at All Souls Church in New York City. 
In her address, Dr. Diana Eck, herself a Methodist, called on Unitarian Universalists to take seriously our place in the religious landscape of the United States, saying, and I quote, I believe that Unitarian Universalists have a very important role in this new religious America and the new millennium of the world in which we live. You are, in my estimation, the church of the new millennium. In this era, Unitarian Universalism is not the lowest common denominator, but the highest common calling. In a world divided by race and by religion and by ideology, the very presence of a church like this, committed to the oneness of God, the love of God, the love of neighbor and service to humanity is a beacon. The Unitarian theology, and yes, we do have one, <laughs> does not reduce the mystery of the divine, the transcendent, but amplifies it, broadens it to include the investigation of the many, many ways in which the divine is known and yet unknown. The world is in need of your theology. Will follow me all the day. 
I bring greetings from all souls in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Justin served for five years as our young adult and campus ministry director, and where he and his wife, Juliana, are dearly beloved, not only by the Unitarian Universalist community, but also by the interfaith community, as well as the University of Tulsa and many others. Now I have to tell you, it's been a long time since I've spoken in any other pulpit besides my own. Over the past year and a half, my congregation has been going through a lot of changes. We welcomed a congregation of mostly African-American Pentecostal Universalists into our church. And since that time, I'm used to getting a lot of feedback when I preach. <laughs> Nowadays, when I'm in the pulpit, I, you know, I feel like I'm dying up here if I don't hear somebody's say amen, that's right, preach it, or something like that. Good. So, the title of my sermon is Say Yes. Oh, oh I love this. I feel right at home. So, yes, of course, being another word for amen, and it's funny how outside of the sanctuary, it's really hard to get Unitarian Universalists to stop talking. <laughs> and yet, when we get inside the sanctuary, we tend to be as quiet as a church mouse, as we say in Oklahoma. And that's all right, I have to say, because one older lady came up to me one day in church after this all started, and she said, now, Marlon, if the people begin to start yelling amen, in this church when they agree with you, then when I disagree with you, I'm going to start yelling, that's baloney. <laughs> and that was my mom. <laughs> Actually, I'm kidding, but she could have, she's older than my mom. She could have been my mom. But it goes to show you that we are a different kind of religion. We might not always agree with our ministers and what they say, but we tend to love them and respect them just the same. <laughs> now saying yes to being a minister has meant that I've been blessed to share great moments in people's lives. I've been there with men when they're about to get married, you know, and the groom's sweating in his tuxedo and nervously trying to fix his bow tie and his brother's next to him and his best friend from high school and his uncle. And he's seconds away from a life commitment that he's been thinking about for, on some level, for his entire life. And we say a prayer. And I've even been there when a mother gave birth after the doctors had told her that she would never be able to have children. And I've been blessed to stand up before the church on Sunday morning with the couple when they brought 
the baby, which was more than a blessing to them. It was a miracle. Up onto the chancel to name her and bless her and welcome her into our community of love. I've also been blessed to watch a daughter take a wet sponge and dampen her elderly mother's lips as her mother lies dying on a bed in the home where she grew up. There in the same home where that same mother many years earlier used to take a napkin and moisten it with her own spit and wipe some dried food off the daughter's cheek. And I watched as the tears came streaming down the daughter's face when her mom finally slipped from time into eternity. And she found herself suddenly sitting in that big house feeling as alone as an orphan. You see, I've been there during incredible moments when a baby was born and survived only a few hours before dying in his parents' arms. I've been in a hospital room praying with a wife and her children when there was an accident and her husband was in a coma for days and they didn't know if he'd survive and even if he did survive, whether he'd ever be able to recognize them again. And I've been blessed to be there to watch him wake up and to regain his his strength and his life and his vitality. I've been there to explain to a nine-year-old child that his young, healthy dad died suddenly of a heart attack while he was at school and that he would never, ever see him again. I've been called to come to an apartment building when a congregant had barricaded herself in the front office in the midst of a psychotic episode. And I was blessed to be able to help her to feel safe again, to to go with the ambulance drivers to get the help that she needed when she wouldn't listen to anyone else. I've been blessed to to be asked to be there for an adult son who had to tell his parents, who he loves with all of his heart, that he's gay. And he's trembling inside because he wasn't sure if they'd still love him in the same way. And I've been there when two parents found their son hanging lifeless from a tree in the woods behind their home. As a minister, we are, are blessed to be there when life is beautiful and when life is pretty tough. Life's really made up of important moments and the people we share them with. The ordination and installation of a new minister is an important moment. To say yes to a minister, which is what this congregation is doing today, is an act of faith. Faith in someone's character and courage and compassion and creativity. I want you to know that this might be his official ordination. But you have to understand that my wife and I already ordained him years ago, so to speak. We did when we asked him to deliver the eulogy for our beautiful three-year-old daughter who died suddenly and unexpectedly one night in the middle of the night in my arms. You don't really know a person until you see him or her on the worst day of their life. And in those moments, you know who you want around you and who you don't. Who do you want around 
when you're not sure you can say yes to life, to God, or to anything anymore. When you find yourself walking through a dreary land in the valley of the shadow of death and despair, who do you trust to guide you when it's so murky you can't see a thing? I'll tell you one person I trust, and it's Justin Schroeder. He's been there to help restore my soul, to lead me back onto the paths of righteousness, and to once again fill my heart with a song. It's also an act of faith to say yes to a congregation, which is what you have done if you're a member here, and what Justin is doing formally today. It means saying yes to a community and its values and traditions and to its future. Now, some people join a church and they don't want it to ever change. They liked it when they joined. In fact, that's why they joined. <laughs> and the idea that it would change is not at all attractive. <laughs> that's baloney. Now, where I come from, we call that a country club congregation. It's a church that's focused on keeping the comfortable comfortable. But it's only a church in name if it's only serving the members who are already there. Call it what you want, but if it isn't pushing you beyond what you might personally prefer to do on your own, it's not a church. In Oklahoma, we have a saying, you can put your boots in the oven, but that doesn't make them biscuits. <laughs> I can tell you're not from Oklahoma. <laughs> Call <laughs> Call it what you will, but a true church comforts you when you're afflicted and perturbs you and disturbs you when you get too comfortable. In a real church, you don't always get what you want, but you'll get what you need. A church is not where you come to get what you want. That's called a health spa. Saying yes to be part, being part of a church is saying yes to being made uncomfortable. Being a member of a church is saying, yes, there is something more important to me than myself. I've sometimes wondered if someone invented a time machine, and I had a chance to go back and visit and, and live in any era and any time in history, where would I want to live? You know, I'd fly over Asia in the 6th century before the Common Era and visit the Golden Era when giants like Buddha and Confucius and Lao Tse walked the earth. But I wouldn't want to settle there. I'd go down to Galilee in the 1st century and watch a Palestinian Jew named Jesus telling stories about loving God and neighbor, but I wouldn't want to settle there. 
I traveled to Transylvania in the 1500s and watched David Francis proclaiming the first charter of religious freedom at the Diet of Turda, but I wouldn't want to settle there. I'd go to Baltimore in 1819 to hear William Ellery Channing delivering a sermon at an ordination much like this one for a young, promising minister when he claimed the name Unitarian for the first time in America, but I wouldn't want to settle there. I'd wander to Walden Pond and see a heartfelt Henry David Thoreau sitting by the banks penning his tremendous treatise on transcendentalism, but I wouldn't want to settle there. I'd even fly over Washington, D.C. in the second half of the 20th century and witness Martin Luther King Jr. on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial sharing his impassioned dream with America, but I wouldn't settle there. If I had a choice to live in any place, in any era, I'd choose to live at the end of the first decade of the 21st century when America has elected its first black president. When the Unitarian Universalist Association has elected its first native Spanish-speaking president. A time when gay and straight, young and old, male and female and transgender, people with faith and people with no faith can and are coming together to share their lives and share their gifts with each other and the world in places just like this. A time when Professor Diana Eck from Harvard, who's probably forgotten more about American religion than most of us will ever know, has said that Unitarian Universalists have a very important role in this new religious America and the new millennium of the world we live in. You are, in my estimation, she tells us, the church of the new millennium. In this era, Unitarian Universalism is not the lowest common denominator, but the highest common calling. In a world divided by race and by religion and ideology, the very presence of a church like this, committed to the oneness of God, the love of God, the love of neighbor, and service to humanity, is a beacon. The world is in need of your theology. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. The world is in need of our theology. But the problem is that we're sitting on the franchise. We've taken the most inclusive theology imaginable and we've packaged it in a rather charming but narrow New England Protestant culture. We've taken some of the most expansive religious concepts and have lodged them in a niche that, is, that primarily appeals to a tiny percentage of the NPR listening audience. <laughs> We hang a shingle outside of all of our churches that say we're welcoming to all, but what we really mean, if we're honest with each other, is that we're welcoming to all who will come into our churches as long as they don't make us feel uncomfortable. We are truly welcoming to people who 
are of different cultures and creeds, different generations, different sexual orientations and skin pigmentations, as long as they generally act and worship like those of us who are already here. But if we're really serious about taking our rightful place as a central source of salvation, if we really believe that our message is something that the world needs, then we have to begin to offer our message in cultural and liturgical packages that speak to the millions of Americans who already agree with us, but who don't feel at home in our sanctuaries, and who feel inspired by our values, but don't feel fed by our worship. We need to learn to affirm people who find their strength and salvation not only in Buddha and Wicca and yoga, not only through nature and science and intellect, but also people who find their strength and salvation in Jesus. Too many of our congregations have become the church of anything but Jesus. But that not only mocks our historical heritage, but it blocks our present calling and it thwarts our future. For universalists, it should not matter if a person has on their altar or in their mind's eye when they pray a picture of Jesus or Krishna or Kuan Yin or a sunset. But too often, not always, but too often, when a person comes into a Unitarian Universalist classroom or conversation and says that they love Jesus, they're made to feel like a, a leper, or an outsider at least. It's our tradition's current hypocrisy. And we maintain it at our peril and disgrace. We can be and must become a safe harbor for all those seeking a religion thus inclusive and free. Lynn, for example, found a safe harbor. She's, a nine, she's 19 years old, she's African-American, and I first read about her in the newspaper in Tulsa four years ago. She started dating a boy in her high school, and days later, when she answered a knock at her front door, there stood the boy's ex-girlfriend who threw mercuric acid in her face. Lynn never recovered her sight, and her young, beautiful face has been disfigured by scar tissue. When I first read about this story, it was something so far removed from me and my life that I couldn't even relate to it. It occurred in a part of the city, probably no more than six miles from my home, but yet it's still a place where people like me mostly read about murders and drive-by shootings, but these stories appear like, more like fictions from a world far, far away. Two weeks ago, as Lynn was leaving the sanctuary of my church, she said she wanted to give me her testimony. No one had ever approached me for that before. <laughs> she proceeded to take my hands in hers and squeeze them warmly, as she explained that she'd been sitting in my church every Sunday since June, and she wanted me to know that she no longer blames God for what happened to her. She understands now that God did not do this to her. It was the act of a person and a choice. The religion that she knew before told her that God controlled everything, 
She explained that our church has helped give her back her relationship with God. And has given her life a newfound strength and inspiration and meaning. A few years ago, Lynn would have never walked into our church. But because we decided to say yes to changes in our worship style and music and staffing and outreach, we have made All Souls Unitarian Church in Tulsa a place where she feels she can belong. Our churches must be a safe harbor and a springboard. That's how we might live into a calling of being the religion of this millennium. And it will be ministers like Justin who knows who he is and who knows how to comfort and challenge his people. And congregations like First Universalist that remember their history and that care about the future. Every generation has a chance to change the world. Churches like this one are going to be the churches that lead the way. If you say yes. <laughs> Here's the future I imagine for Unitarian, that Unitarian Universalists can build. I imagine multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, and even multilingual congregations that express and celebrate the same core beliefs in a multitude of ways. One faith with many expressions in worship and action. It might mean that we try some things that will fail, as well as some things that change the world. You are entering one of the most exciting chapters of, in the life of this church. You have significant resources, a sound history and theology, a beautiful sanctuary, and a new, young, vibrant, and capable minister. The next few years at First Universalists are bound to be the most challenging and the most fun, the most love-filled and meaningful and valuable years of your collective lives so far. Are you ready? Yes. Don't go back to sleep. Hello, church. Well, you've heard some about the theory of saying yes. I'm going to give you a chance to practice saying yes. I offer gratitude often to this congregation for shaping me in my ministry, and particularly to the Carl Olson Fund, which helped me to get through seminary some 20 years ago. As was mentioned this morning, Something like 45 ministers across the country in our tradition have been helped by this congregation through the Carl Olson Fund. 
But you know, not every ministerial student is lucky enough to come from this congregation. And so for Unitarian Universalist seminarians and new ministers across the country, the Living Tradition Fund is there to help. It helps students to get through seminary without incurring enormous debts. It helps new ministers with often um, marginally paid settlements. And it helps all ministers who have crises with aid when they need it. So as we ordain and install Justin today and soak in the energy of another person in this living tradition, I invite you, you saw many of us process, there's a wonderful representation embodiment of the living tradition here today. I invite you to reflect on what leadership, what good leadership is worth to you. And I invite you to take out a check or a bill that reflects the amount of what it is worth to you and what you can freely and generously give. And I want you to look at that amount until inside you say, yes, I would be proud and delighted to put this in the plate when it comes by. Years ago, when I was the director of religious education in this congregation, then minister John Cummins said, if you want to see someone's real theology, take a look at their checkbook register. So as you give today, I invite you to reflect on your theology and your values and to give in a way that makes your theology evident as you look through your checkbook register. The afternoon's offering will now be taken. Amen. 
garret a truth, a fugitive or a slave? Would you harbor a Haitian, Korean, or Czech, a lesbian or a gay? Would you harbor me? Within the Unitarian Universalist religious tradition, the authority to ordain men and women to the ministry of liberal religion lies wholly within the local church. The act of ordination confers no special powers or unusual abilities. It is the acknowledgement of an individual's commitment to seek and embrace all that is fundamental to building a vital religious community. Our purpose, however, can only be realized if we acknowledge our own obligation to be loyal, truthful, and loving. Will the members of First Universalist Church please rise as you are able and repeat with me the words from the order of service so that together we may ordain Justin Schroeder. We, the congregation of First Universalist Church, Accepting our right and affirming your commitment and ability, do hereby ordain you, Justin Schroeder, into the Universalist ministry and service of humankind. We charge you to celebrate the principles of our faith and to fulfill your ministry with love, courage, integrity, and wonder. We give you our full blessing and support and pledge ourselves to walk with you in unity of spirit, bonded by peace, with truth, respect, and love. Now, would all others gathered here also rise in body or spirit? And will you who have just risen repeat with me the words in the order of service? We who know Justin and support his ministry do affirm this ordination. I am honored and humbled by your vision. And with your help and grace and love, we will make this so. Please be seated. What we have said with words, we will now enact with our whole selves. The moment has come for the ritual we call in our tradition the laying on of hands. Justin, just as it is the sacred responsibility of these people to ordain you, it's their privilege and their joy to bless you with a ritual that reminds us how ministry that begins 
with the consent, the yes of our hearts and souls and minds, ultimately takes shape through the touch and work of hands, our hands. So Reverend Justin Schroeder, would you come forward and move with me to the floor of the sanctuary, the ground of our gathering place, And for a moment, would you just stand before your people and be and see? Look around at these faces, these glad, willing, radiant faces. Take a moment to know how it feels to be embraced by their hearts even before you are touched by their hands. And now I invite your family to come forward, the ones with whom you live in the most primary covenant, blood deep and lifetimes wide. Juliana Keene, your wife, and Tucker, your son. Juliana's mother, Lisa Keene. Rick and Marianne Schroeder, your father and mother. Nathan, your brother, his wife, Karen, their daughter, Isla your sister Sierra and her partner Don, your sister Laurel. We gather into those loved ones who are with you, not in body today, but in spirit and love and those whose lives you hold in precious memory, including Juliana, your father Robert. And the loved ones are invited and included. All the loved ones are invited in this rite of passage. And would you put your hands, place your hands on Justin. And I now invite the Reverend John Cummins, a living predecessor, to come forward and place his hands on you. <laughs> and John places his hands on Justin and in spirit all the ones before him who have been called to minister to this congregation. And Justin, you will be serving and learning and creating in collaboration with the trustees of this church. Will the trustees rise and join us and place hands on Justin? And you will be accompanied in this ministry by so many loving colleagues Will all the clergy rise in body or spirit and draw close and bless Justin with your touch or touch those who are touching Justin? <laughs> and finally and most essentially, our people, the members and families of First Universalist Church, the only ones who have the power to ordain, the ones by whom, Justin, you are chosen to lead, to listen, to love, to speak, to care, to risk on behalf of your mutual mission. I invite all now to rise in body or spirit and place hands on one another's shoulders. Come forward if that's easy for you. You in the balcony, you can extend your arms and send your blessing by an act of will from the farthest pew all the way to Justin as we pray first and then we sing. Spirit of life and love present in and among and between us, present 
everywhere, in everything, in the hearts that beat within us, and the hearts of those who came before, and the hearts of those who will follow us. We are so grateful for the beauty of this moment, for every step that's brought us here, for the opportunity to witness this, and for the work we're called to do. And so standing here with hearts full, minds clear, spirits strong, we call down a blessing, call down a blessing on you, Justin Schroeder. Be blessed. We name you minister, and in naming you minister, we set in motion the great cycle, the circle of giving and receiving. As you receive from us and give back to us the power and the presence to love and serve, as you receive from us and give back to us the power to do and be the world we want to see. Remaining just as we are, we'll pray in song as we sing together, Spirit of Life. of life come unto me sing in my
Justin, on behalf of the members of First Universalist Church, we present this stole to welcome you as our 10th called minister. The design of this stole represents your journey into the ministry. This gift signifies our shared commitment to your, to your ministry here at First Universalist Church. May you wear it in joy, unity, and peace as together we dwell in the mystery and seek the truth in love. May it be so. Before you kneel, <laughs> yes. I want to remind you that you stand on holy ground, ground that was forged by your universalist ancestors, who knew that no one is left behind, and that God is love and animates and endows all that is and that that is the gospel and the great cloud of witness upon which you stand. Now kneel. <laughs> I begin with your dreams and your discerning and critical mind and your powerful imagination for all that you can see and know, all that you can dream, and I call you to dream boldly. And speak those dreams and that vision, but may that vision be tempered by what you hear from them. <laughs> Remember, when you turn a big ship, it takes a long time. Your vision is clear and valid and true, and dare to speak truth to power. We know you will do this, but may your speaking be tempered with what you hear in words that are spoken and words that remain silent in what isn't spoken, in the silent yearnings and longing of the human heart and mind. <laughs> no watch? No watch. Pretend you have a watch. You have a great imagination. Here you go. Remember to make time, to make time for this beloved person down there. And, no, not Tucker Giuliani, you. <laughs> make time for your inspiration and your own spiritual life. Because if you do not feed it, you will dry up and blow away. Be grounded in the love that you share with your family, and I include your entire family in that love, and I include all of us who claim you as family. Take 
time for yourself, for your family, for your inspiration. And remember church time. <laughs> it's as slow as molasses. <laughs> and you will have brilliant ideas. And what you will think is that people don't hear you, but they do. But they're operating on church time. <laughs> it has its own mysterious rhythm, and you have to trust it. And in a few years, people will be quoting you back to yourself. <laughs> and lastly, when your tender heart is broken open by all that you can see in the beauty and the brokenness around you, when your heart is split in two with all the tragedy and pain in these people's lives and in your own and in the world around us, remember, you are not alone. These people, your colleagues, love you. And we are here to hold you, to answer those phone calls. And most importantly, you are not alone, because our liberal faith holds people in pain and suffering. It is enough. And this God that you love, this God that you hold, this God and this faith, and these people will be with you always.
We are here in one sense to celebrate what we have already done. In another sense, we're here to do what we planned some months ago, to make a ritual covenant with Justin Schroeder, whom we have called to minister to us. Our choosing of a minister, our exercising the right to choose, helps us define our freedom as a religious community. It is a precious part of our heritage. Let us proceed now with solemnity and with joy in this act of mutual dedication to the relationship of minister and congregation. Will you members of First Universalist please stand and repeat with me the words for installation? We, the congregation of First Universalist Church, install you, Justin Schroeder, to serve as our minister. Be with us in our grief and our uncertainty. Rejoice with us during the times of joy and grace. Preach from your heart of hearts, for yours is a free pulpit. Listen to us. Represent our faith here and beyond. Mindful of these great obligations, I freely and enthusiastically take up this ministry. With your help and grace, we shall thrive.
Amen. It was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Beloved friends, let me add my voice and the many voices of Unity Church Unitarian to the chorus of congratulations which rises up in harmony and hope to celebrate with you this glorious day. Particularly, I want to congratulate the members of your search committee and your wisdom in choosing them, for they did a beautiful job. This is a time for taking stock, for remembering your strengths, and for acknowledging your weaknesses. My duty today is to help you to do that as simply and directly as I can. You know your strengths. You've been hearing about them all afternoon. <laughs> You've been a loving, supportive religious community for anyone, for longer than anyone, even John, <laughs> can remember. With only the occasional lapses into acrimony which plague congregations of all kinds, you've stood by each other, stalwart spiritual friends for 150 years. It's no small accomplishment. In sustaining one another, you have not only offered support to each other, but also, as we've heard, to your city in a thousand ways. I charge you to continue to do so, both directly through service and action for justice, and indirectly in the many ways you inspire and strengthen your people to live out their values in the world. Be bold. Say yes. Make a real difference, not only in the lives of those who cast their lot with you, but in the many ways you bless and serve the world. Take yourselves seriously. We fall so easily into idolatry. Over and over again, we mistake the finite for the infinite. We worship the church itself rather than enlist the power of the holy in pursuit of the church's purposes. We bow down before the golden calf we call community, or as Marlon called it, comfort. We mistake the finger which points to the moon for the moon. Our primary weakness is a theological confusion which misdirects our energies and weakens our endeavors. Your purpose is not the perpetuation of this place, no matter how much you may love it. Your purpose is to engender here the experience of the holy in the lives of your people, to break their hearts open, and then to organize the compassion that rises out of the emptiness of the wound. 
In our effort to be all things to all people, we engage in a false democracy. We reject healthy, honest leadership in favor of an illusion of equality. I charge you to let your leaders lead and to support them by providing respectful, timely feedback. Defer to their wisdom when deference is called for. I can assure you, Justin, Kate, and the other leaders of your congregation do have your best interests at heart. They are eager to welcome each and all of you into the creative, sustainable possibilities for partnership this moment portends. Much as you may appreciate and love them, your ministers are not your hired friends. Do I need to say that again? I know you think so. <laughs> Much as you may love them, your ministers are not your hired friends. They don't owe you intimacy. They owe you leadership. They owe you vision. They owe you inspiration. Don't be afraid. Be forthright. Be courageous. Be deep. Be bold. Be ten times as bold. The great American poet, Adrian Rich, in her masterpiece, Fantasia for Elvira Shatayev, tells the story of a women's climbing team, which I may be able to choke out, all of whom died in a storm on Lenin Peak in August of 1974. I want to close with the words with which she closes her poem. In the diary I wrote, now we are ready and each of us knows it. I have never loved like this. I have never seen my own forces so taken up and shared and given back. After the long training, the early sieges, we are moving almost effortlessly in our love. In the diary, as the wind began to tear at the tents over us, I wrote, we know now we have always been in danger down in our separateness, and now, up here, together, but till now, we had not touched our strength. In the diary, torn from my fingers, I had written, what does love mean? What does it mean to survive? A cable of blue fire ropes our bodies, burning together in the snow. We will not live to settle for less. We have dreamed of this all of our lives. Justin, I give you my hand and my heart and welcome you to the Unitarian Universalist Ministry. May your ministry be gifted with inner light that will enable you to see a world where every child in every generation everywhere is free from all prisons of the mind and the body and the spirit and almighty justice and mercy cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Welcome, Justin, 
to the ministry of fellowship of those who would make of their own lives a pathway to the light. have been otherwise this moment, this gathering, this celebration, this breath of life we share. It could have been otherwise. But we're here, now, alive, together in this gathered community. Do not let go of what is stirring in your heart. Do not go back to sleep. As you leave this place of memory and hope and love, Awakened once again, may you turn toward love. May you turn toward the deepest yes you've ever known. May it be so, and amen. amen.